Hello, this is Bob, and uh, we have kind of a unique podcast today um, because on November 7th, Sunday, November 7th, when I was preaching on the beginning of John chapter 5, our recording didn't work. And so we wanted to get this sermon recorded, and thankfully I have a manuscript. And so today I'm in my little homemade uh, podcast studio, and I am going to re-preach that sermon from John chapter 5, uh, almost word for word, as I gave it on November 7th. So uh, sit tight and uh, listen along. If Jesus came to you today asking a simple question, do you want to be healed? How would you respond? Maybe with a question of your own. Healed of what? Or a simple answer, yes, Lord. Or maybe an excuse. I'm sorry, I'm trying, I'll do better. What would you say? We'll see one man's response here in this passage. So listen along as I read from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometime in late 2004, Steve Jobs, the Apple CEO, had decided that Apple should try to make a phone. He had been dragging his feet on this for years, right? He didn't like the idea of making a phone, and he said that if they were to do a phone, it had to be fully touch screen. No buttons like the BlackBerry, if you remember the BlackBerry and people kind of on them punching those buttons. So Jobs uh, contacted a few engineers who had been working on touchscreen stuff at Apple, and he told them they're going to do a phone, and he needed them to make it work. And one of the lead engineers, Boz Ording, was working on the technology, and he realized that a touchscreen needed to have a real-world feel. When you scrolled faster, the screen needed to scroll faster. When you hit the top or bottom of a page, it needed to kind of bounce, and they call that the rubber band effect. The laws of physics had to in some way actually translate virtually. Within a few weeks, Ording got a prototype to Jobs, and Jobs said, When I saw the rubber band effect, the inertial scrolling, and a few other things, I thought, my God, we can build a phone out of this. 
And from that came the iPhone and its copycat competitors and all the significant cultural change it catalyzed for better and worse. Now, that story is not so much a story of innovation, but a story of imagination. For Jobs to immediately get that the key to a touchscreen phone is this rubber band effect and realistic scrolling, that takes incredible imagination and openness. And imagination is what the characters in this passage are lacking. The man who is healed and the religious authorities who question him are just dull and thick-headed. They have no imagination for what God can do and might be doing. And we're often the same way. Whether it's illness and personal tragedy or man-made rules or political economic forces or whatever else, we think we know what God is up to and where he is working or not. We're happy to put boundaries around God and box him in. It can even feel easier that way. And Jesus challenges them and us by saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. God is not done working through his Son, Jesus Christ. God is not done working in your life, and God is not done working in the world. So that's how we're going to look at this passage. First, God is not done working in your life. Presumably, that's what this man thought, who had been disabled in some way for 38 years. This place here, uh, Bethesda, uh, with the pool and colonnades, has actually been found in Jerusalem by archaeologists. Apparently, at the time of Jesus, it was a popular spot for people seeking healing. There was a superstition, which is actually found in multiple cultures, that in certain bodies of water, when the water is stirred up, say by an angel or some other heavenly force perhaps, it has healing powers. Whoever gets in first gets healed. So imagine this scene. There, there are two pools there, actually. The whole site is maybe half an acre. There are dozens of people lying around waiting for some movement in the water. Jesus shows up. Now, why does he pick this man to talk with and to heal? Well, we can only guess, but this guy likely was one of the veterans of the place. 38 years disabled. It's hard to live that long in this culture like that. He was certainly one of the oldest there. And Jesus had to approach him and initiate a conversation. In so many other instances, healing the blind, healing children, healing lepers, these people cry out for Jesus to help. This man isn't asking Jesus for anything. Again, he, he's a veteran at this. He's stopped asking random people for help. So Jesus has to ask him. Verse 6, do you want to be healed? And a better translation of Jesus' question is, do you want to get better? But this disabled man doesn't answer that question. He gives an explanation why he isn't getting better. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. This is a strange interaction. Jesus asks the simple question, do you want to get better? And the right answer is, yes, can you help me? But this man hears and answers a different question. He's answering the question, why aren't you better yet? Do you even want to get better? And all at once there is a sense of shame, resignation, and self-justification in this man's answer. No real request for help. It appears he isn't holding out much hope. And that's because his hope is in man. His answer, I have no one to put me in the pool, reveals this. There's a standard Greek word for the expression, no one. 
That's not what this man says. He says, literally, I have no man to put me in the pool. And that's a very strange way to say it and meant to help us understand what's going on. Though this disabled man was there for a miracle in the water, his hope was in man, any man, who could get him down to the water in time. What is missing is any hope in a living and active God. And so even though he expressed no faith whatsoever, Jesus says to this man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. It seems like Jesus does this to prove that God was this man's only hope. God was still active and working. God was not done working in this man's life. And God is not done working in our lives. Some of us have no hope in God at all. We don't perceive him to be present or working in any way. Our hope is in ourselves, others, the course of history, laws of economics, anything. There are some things we hope can change in our lives, and we are resigned to some things never changing. And one thing this passage is asking you to do is have some imagination, have some openness that there might be a God who might actually be able to work in your life and do what no man can do. Now, one of the purposes of this passage is to provide all of us a negative example of faithlessness. Just before this, before this passage, we see an example of true faith. The official who leaves his dying son to go get Jesus and then takes Jesus at his word and walks back home by faith that his son is healed. Now, here we have this disabled man who seemingly has given up hope in God and can't even ask Jesus for basic physical help. The point is, don't be like this guy. In this Gospel of John, Jesus is always asking questions to get into people's hearts. What are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Where will we get bread for these people? Can I have a drink of water? And here, do you want to get better? That's what Jesus is asking us this morning. Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Well, healed of what, you might ask? Well, somewhere in your life, You are this 38 years long invalid. You have stopped asking God for help or never thought to ask God for help. You are operating as if God were absent, out to lunch, on sabbatical. And the way you think about this is the same mixture of shame, resignation, and self-justification as this man here. Listen for it in your heart. Where does shame, resignation, and self-justification come out of you? That's where you assume God is not working. It might be in a family relationship. It might be in an unhealthy living, eating, drinking, etc. It might be in our sexuality. It might be in our marriage. It might be in our career trajectory. It might be how our kids are turning out. If you're a pastor, it might be how you perceive your church is doing. It is scary easy to become a 38 years long invalid about your own ministry. I taught at a Christian high school when I uh, first moved out here in my early 20s, and there the staff always gathered before class to do a staff devotion. Everyone would take turns leading. And I still remember one uh, from very early on by one of the English teachers there. It was about prayer, how when he was a kid growing up, he'd wake up and get out of bed and, and walk to the kitchen, and he'd see his dad praying in his office every morning and how that shaped and and molded him. And he was commending to us the praying life, regular prayer. 
And I remember thinking at that time, and for years later, with shame, resignation, and self-condemnation, that will just never be me. Except now, through a series of non-related choices and events, I generally wake up early, pray, and then exercise. Now, my kids come out of their room and see me praying. And you're saying, well, you're a pastor, Bob. That's what you should be doing. And sure, you're right. But that's not who I was. Anyone who's known me a while would say, praying and exercising first thing early in the morning is not Bob. Except, it's becoming me. God is not done working in my life. God is not done working in your life. His word this morning is his promise to you. Jesus is still at work. And if nothing else, he's telling us to engage him in these areas of hopelessness and resignation. Because it is these areas of unbelief and hopelessness that act like cancer to the life of faith. Many of us wonder what it takes to really live a distinct life for Jesus, to be captivated by him and find him more compelling than the gospel of Silicon Valley. It's hard for that to happen when there's a place of dead hopelessness and resignation in our lives. It can cripple the faith you do have in other areas of your life. Have some imagination. God is not done working. Not in your life and not in the world. That's the second point. God is not done working in the world. And this is what the religious authorities were missing. Verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Well, here is another fascinating interaction, but I first need to clear up a few things. First, when John calls people the Jews, quote-unquote, he almost always means the religious or political authorities and elite. Everyone in this passage are Jews. Right? He means the people in charge. Also, this was a Sabbath, Saturday, when God called his people to rest. That's the fourth commandment. By the time of Jesus, an oral tradition of more laws had been embraced, uh, regulating all aspects of Jewish life. And for the Sabbath, there were 39 things you could not do, you were not supposed to do. And the 39th, the last thing, was carry stuff between dwelling places. So this guy was breaking the oral tradition of Sabbath regulations. And the authorities ask him about it. And the man explains what happened. But instead of the authorities asking, who is the man who healed you? Tell us more about that. They ask, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Wow, this guy said he was healed, and they don't care. They care about maintaining their Sabbath regulations, and anyone who teaches against that is a threat. Why? Because (laughs) apparently they know how God works, and they know what God demands of us. This day here in the story is a Sabbath, and it's almost as if the authorities believe God is Sabbathing on sabbatical. This is how some of them were thinking. God has done his work. Now it's time for us to do ours. We have to be faithful and obedient, and if we are enough, God will return to us and bring us the Messiah. Their hope is in man. right? If Israel can just be faithful enough, it will be restored. And that basically boils down to God is not working in the world for now. We know what he wants. It's up to us to do it. And that's why Jesus answers, My father is working until now, and I am working. God is not on sabbatical. 
He's not waiting around for us to get our acts together. If you are open to the truth that God is always working, sometimes in unbelievable and unimaginable ways, you will not be as quick to judge. You will not be as quick to get angry. The less you think God is working in the world, the more you're going to have to judge and police it or live in fear of it. But if you believe that God is deeply at work in the world, you can have less anger and judgment and more curiosity. These authorities weren't curious. They weren't asking, what could God be up to? Maybe we have something to learn. This crustiness happens in most religions, which is why in our religious tradition, the Protestant Reformation, we have a commitment to openness and curiosity and imagination. We just had Reformation Day commemorating Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in the year 1517, which uh, set off some churches breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the commitments that came out of the Reformation for Protestants was a phrase uh, that goes, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. We have never arrived at all the right answers and the perfect faith. We have more to learn and more we can improve on because God is still at work in the world and active among his people. We can bring curiosity, imagination, and faith to challenging situations and challenging people. We see it here. Right? There's, there's a festival happening right now in Jerusalem in this passage. We're not sure which it is. We, we think it might be the Feast of Trumpets. The place to be for this festival is the temple. And instead, Jesus goes to where all the disabled are hanging out. One commentator likens it to Skid Row. This day is literally a holiday, and Jesus goes to a very difficult place with lots of hurting and hopeless people. Why? Because his heavenly Father is still working, and so can he. This man who had been disabled for 38 years, he was pretty hopeless, pretty negative. Probably it had incredibly hard life. The sort of person we might be afraid to interact with because there's nothing we can do. There's nothing man can do. But is there nothing God can do? Is there nothing God can do? Come and see. A few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus in Samaria and his disciples see this whole town coming toward them and Jesus says, look, that's the harvest of God. One of the things we were supposed to get from that is we can never write anyone off. No one is too far for God to reach and change. And maybe that's why Jesus picked this guy to heal. He was hopeless and negative and making excuses and showed zero faith. God can work with that. Can you imagine? What are the situations and people you think are hopeless? Could God possibly work in them? If God is still at work in the world, then in his name you can move toward the people and places that seem hopeless. Whatever part of the COVID madness you're angry about, whichever political party you're disgusted by, whoever is destroying themselves or seems to be out to destroy you, you can move toward these situations and people in faith, hope, and love. God is not done working in the world. Now, maybe that all sounds like too much, too big of an ask for you. And all I can say is, I'm sorry, God is not done working in your life. And you're like, what? If you've been listening, that was my first point. How can that be my third point? Because the thing is, we can narrow down the areas and places where we need or want God to work. 
right? Maybe we invite him into a very dark place or a deeply felt need and he shows up. Awesome. You've been healed or you've graduated. You've gotten married. You're, you finished your career. Wonderful. Well, guess what? God is not done working in your life. Look at verses 13 through 16. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What does Jesus mean? I mean, this is the most challenging point of the passage, I think. What does Jesus mean, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you? Was this guy disabled for 38 years because of sin? We don't know. Sometimes in the Bible we see sin can lead to sickness and disability, but other times we are explicitly told it is not because of sin that this or that person is in bad shape. So we cannot say definitively that someone who is suffering is suffering because of their sin. But according to Jesus, this man was living in sin or flirting with sin. Something was wrong. What could it be? Well, we see hints of it here. This is a guy who isn't all that interested in knowing Jesus. After being healed, he doesn't pursue and try to find Jesus. Jesus has to go find him in the temple. This guy's getting back to normal life. He's joining the party in the temple. And then Jesus gives him this warning. And what does the guy do? He goes straight to the religious authorities and identifies Jesus as the one they're looking for, right? Instead, why doesn't the guy say to Jesus, hey, come with me back to the, to the pool of Bethesda and, and heal some more people? Or why doesn't he run back to the pool and tell the people, to, hey, come and see, come and see Jesus who, who had healed him, right? Just like the Samaritan woman did. In previous passages, like turning water into wine, or the Samaritan woman at the well, or healing the official son, the stories end with faith and belief of the people involved. This story doesn't end that way. There is no comment on this man believing in Jesus. We don't know how it ends. It's a cliffhanger. But according to Jesus, this man is at risk. Well, at risk of what? Missing salvation. Missing God missing forgiveness of his sins, and dying in his sin. And dying in your sin means having to answer for your sin yourself. That's not good. There was clearly an underlying problem in this man's life beyond severe disability. And Jesus is willing to take care of the disability to get to the deeper issue. That's all of our situations. No matter the problem or need we are focusing on or avoiding, our needs will always run deeper. We need a solution for the source of our problems, death and blame-shifting and self-righteousness and self-centeredness, alienation from God, from each other and ourselves. There is no mere man who can help us. But what this gospel says is that God becomes man in Jesus to absorb our death and sin and free us from it on the cross. Jesus gives this man and us a choice. We can sin no more, right? Good luck with that. Or we can entrust ourselves to the one who has no sin. Sin no more or entrust yourself to the one who has no sin. That's why God does not stop working in our lives. Being truly healed means knowing the healer 
deeper and deeper, trusting and walking with the healer, pointing others to the healer. We can always grow more into that. Christians can narrow down God's work in them to one sharp, piercing sin that dogs them and won't go away. I frequently have to remind younger men that God does not only care about their sexual purity and how they're doing fighting lust. God's work in their lives does not stop with that battle. For others, it might be greed or arrogance or envy or judgmentalism or control, whatever. God cares about more than the one thing in your life, the one struggle, and he is at work everywhere in your life to draw you closer to his son, Jesus Christ. He will use our successes and our failures to convince us that our only hope is the one who has no sin. He will not be satisfied with resolving one big issue. God is not done after that. He doesn't go on vacation. You might remember this story, Christmas Eve 2019. Mark Eugenio had just deposited his paycheck into his empty bank account, and he needed that money to buy Christmas presents for his two kids. He had been at his bank, U.S. Bank, for hours trying to get the funds released, and they assured him his money would be available. But he ended up that night at a gas station five miles from home, out of gas, and no money yet available in his account. So he calls the U.S. Bank helpline. And the call center person on the end of the line was Emily James. She spent an hour trying to get his funds released. Nothing worked. Finally, realizing they were near each other in Portland, Oregon, she just drove to him at the gas station and gave him $20 to get gas and get home. And for that, Emily got fired. Because, of course, in our world, that's an inappropriate crossing of boundaries. It would be a curse on you if someone said to you, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, unless they could give that to you or do that in you, unless they could cross that impenetrable boundary. When you hear Jesus say to you, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, your response shouldn't be shame, resignation, self-justification, making excuses. Your response should be, heal me, Lord. Have mercy on me. Have your way in me. My hope is in you. Jesus crosses all the boundaries to get to us. He takes our shame, our failure, our sin, and grants us his righteousness. He gives freely to us what he demands of us. God is not done working. Jesus is alive and is restoring all things. So invite him into every area and every aspect of your life. And go out and meet him in every area and aspect of the world. God's not done working in you, and he's not done working in this world. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And I ask that you would use your word uh, in the people who hear this. Uh, and that they would recognize that you are alive and working in them. You are not done with them, and you are not done with this world, and that this would give us hope and confidence uh, to move in faith uh, against the things in our lives that, that can cripple us and against the things in this world that seem dark and broken. Help us to be people who bring this good news to bear. Help us to see you working and moving in us, in our church, 
and in our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.